Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest's passion is the passion of many comedy fans over the decades. He's Greg Oppenheimer, son of I Love Lucy creator, producer, head writer Jess Oppenheimer, and Greg left a successful law career to finish his late father's humorous memoir, Laughs, Luck, and Lucy, how I came to create the most popular sitcom of all time. The book's success led to Greg's 2018 hit comedy play, I Love Lucy, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Sitcom. Greg also produced the multi-award-winning I Love Lucy DVDs for CBS. And Greg is on Facebook, and for some original and interesting programming, you can subscribe to Greg on his YouTube channel. And Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How old were you when you realized the impact of I Love Lucy and your father's contribution? <laughs> Uh, it's hard to tell because, I, I mean, I, I grew up with it from such a very early age. Uh, the impact, probably not till I was a teenager, I think. And especially after, uh, my, after Lucy died, there was a, a really an outpouring and renewed interest in it. And, and uh, suddenly, you know, everybody wanted to talk about Lucy. But when you were a kid, you were visiting the set. So to you, I'm sure oh, yeah. it was normal. It just didn't. It just didn't hit you as you mentioned until you became a teenager. What that impact oh, well, the thing, was. The thing I was most excited about when I was uh, visiting the set at that time was I knew that because somebody had read it to me because I didn't read yet uh, that the back of the ticket said that uh, must be at least twelve years old and I was four. <laughs> uh, <and> I, <laughs> you got in under the wire or under the age yeah, limit. Yeah. <laughs> so you grow up. You become an adult, you become an attorney, and you decided to leave your law firm to complete your father's memoirs, obviously after his death. What drove you to, to do that? What was the motivating factor? Well, I had uh, gotten involved in a number of uh, writing projects. I, I was uh, editing the, uh, the newsletter for the alumni, for instance, uh, and also creative things. Uh, I, I was... Uh, uh, I was in the architecture department at MIT, although I never practiced as an architect. And uh, I was in charge of my law firm's building. We had a building on Bunker Hill in downtown LA, a high rise. And uh, we, we owned it. And uh, I was sort of in charge of the, the legal aspects of the investment. And, and so I, we, we remodeled the lobby. Uh, various design things kept coming up. And, and I was just so more, more interested in doing creative things than, than law. And then when I decided to do the memoir, uh, I took a sabbatical and finished it. And it was the most fulfilling thing I've ever, ever done. And so I, I went back to, after my sabbatical, to the law practice. But as soon as I got a publisher, I said, well, this is what I want to do. I want to be an author or, or, or something creative. And uh, so I said, okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm leaving. Uh, I, I'm, so I, I refer to myself as a recovering attorney. <laughs> It's the law firm that you left is not exactly a uh, a two bit law firm. We're talking a prestigious law firm with a former Secretary of State. Oh yeah, it was is the one of the biggest law firms in in, in the country, uh, and uh, one of the oldest in Los Angeles too. And once you decided to make that separation permanent, and you threw yourself into into the creative world, were you satisfied or were you frustrated or did you want to go back to the law firm? What, what was that first initial? jump like i never wanted to go back to the law firm i would I, I became a little frustrated with the uh 
the world of publishing. <laughs> and well, I, you know, I was used to situation as a lawyer, and we dealt with you know other top level law firms. You know, somebody told you they were going to do something and made a commitment to you. They kept it. And uh, in, in the business world outside, I'm sure it's not just publishing, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you're so, saying, yeah. And, uh, you know, I kept having a lot of frustration, including with the marketing department of, of, of my publisher, who, you know, I'd, I'd tell, her, tell them that uh, there was going to be, I was going to be on Donnie and Marie or something, or, or I was going to be on some, some uh, cable show because I wanted them to, you know, coordinate it with, with uh, uh, getting that out there, you know, with a press release or, or, or coordinate with the bookstores to make sure they had displays to take advantage of it. And the person I, I'd say, talk to would say, oh, oh, sorry, I don't have cable. <laughs> I said, you know, it, it was, it, it, was a, it was a marketing suggestion, not a viewing tip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's funny because you sound very lawyery, if that's a term. And yet you're in the, you're at, you're in the creative world. So I'm insulted. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. It's just that you you're very measured in your in your responses. That's why I said that. But yet you obviously have the creative spark. Do you think you got that from your dad? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, yeah, I I I, I, grew, I was very close to my dad. We we basically finished each other's sentences as I was growing up, and uh, you know we. The rest of the family would get mad at us sometimes as we sort of go off into our own world together. And, uh, you know, I, I would pump him for information about uh, his, his TV career and what was going on. And, and I would hang around the set whenever I could, whenever he was doing get smart or whatever. You certainly sucked all that knowledge in and the flavor and the color of being in production. In reading your book, what I found fascinating was, again, we always look at technology today and where we are. And in the 40s and in the 50s, because your dad started in radio, the fact that there were a lot of things around now that were not around then, and yet they were able to produce, in the case of television, a TV series, I Love Lucy, that to this day airs somewhere in the world. That continues to fascinate me because you didn't have digital at the time, and in the case of I Love Lucy, that was the first time I believe that they filmed a television show as a, I won't say as a movie, but they were not using television cameras, they were using motion picture cameras. Yes, the first time they were using motion, moving motion picture cameras and filming in front of an audience. All the various elements had been done before they had motion picture cameras, stationary uh, you know, in front of an audience, they had, uh, um, you know, obviously TV cameras in front of an audience and moving around, but they'd never done the, the combination, which had its own problems. Uh, but fortunately, they got Carl Freund, who was an Academy Award winning cinematographer, uh, to solve the problems that that, that uh, caused. And, and, you know, the amazing thing is, you know, today, now you do series that you know ten episodes a season, you know with the, with the writing staff of you know six, seven, eight, ten people, and then you know three producers or whatever. When I Lucy started, there were three writers: my dad and Bob Carroll and Madeline Pugh, and uh, he was the only producer. And 
they they did 40 shows in 40 weeks and 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 there's some classics you know vitamin and vegemin and freezer and ones that to this day and and none of the technology had been done before i mean they you know they 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 didn't know you know where how where is the audience going to sit and somebody had the idea of well you know in my in my high school they they had bleachers maybe we could build bleachers because that would be fast and and cheap and and then they said well where are we going to put the booth uh, you know, because and so let's put it there, and, and it's still there today. You know, on every show, and so it's just amazing to me. They had people from, and, and this is part of the the, the way they were able to do it. They had people from radio, they had people from live television, they had people from film, and they all contributed things from different industries because every industry is just dead set in its ways. But if you if you got you're doing something new and you have people from three different industries to contribute. Yeah, you have a lot of great ideas, and, and and they would and they would forget, you know, like they were from radio and and, and they were they were writing those first scripts and and they would write something. They'd be in a writing session and 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 they'd write like, uh, the door would open and and then Lucy would say, "Look, here comes Fred," and right. And, and, right. and Mercedes, my my dad's assistant, who was also the casting director, would say, "Hey guys, this is television now. They can see them. You don't have to say that." <laughs> <laughs> it, there's a lot of things in the book that I discovered that I didn't realize. An example, and this is just me, of course, I, it doesn't apply to other people, but I always thought that I Love Lucy was filmed at Desilu Studios, when in fact it was General Service Studios, and it became, again, another invention where they opened up a stage, a sound stage, to permanent sets, and they also had a door that faced out onto the street for the audience to come in and out. This was unheard of before in Hollywood, as far as I know. Oh, yeah. It, it, it just uh, having uh, enough exits and, and, and uh, having a bathroom for people to be able to use. Uh, you know, there were a lot of logistical problems with that. But, you know, they, they, the guy asked uh, uh, Al Simon, uh, who was the associate producer, who found the place, he, he said, can we you know, can we knock a hole here go to the, to the street? And the guy said, "Sure, if you if you uh, close it up before you go." And uh, that hole is still visible today. If you go on that street, there you can see the cracks in the wall around it. Interesting. Uh, I, I've been I've been trying to convince them to build a, a, a paint a mural there, showing you know the, the door and the people lined up down the because this big blank wall down the street. Right. It would and be I a said, great idea. Yeah, you do that. The great the gray line tours are going to come every day. <laughs> That's they're, they're, they're <laughs> that, not interested though. And well, listen, what are you going to do? But I believe yeah. General Service Studios was also the home for the Ozzie and Harriet show, as well as a, a George Burns and Gracie Allen. That's right, and and, and later uh, Francis Ford Coppola took over. That was Zoetrope Studios. Hollywood history is always fascinating when you look at when you read your book and you see all of the firsts because there were so many. Television was in its infant stage at that point. And as I mentioned earlier, the technology wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. So the, the fact that they were able to do what they did, and just for our audience who may not know, prior to I Love Lucy, they would make kinescopes, which were basically film of the television screen. And that's how they were able to show the program again on the other coast. What I Love Lucy did in Breaking Ground was to create, again, we talked about motion picture cameras. and I. I believe they were Mitchell cameras. I don't know if they even exist anymore, but at any rate. Yeah. Okay. 
And yeah, and they, so they shot, they shot it with motion picture cameras. And then someone came up with the great idea of, again, this is a dated equipment, but it always worked, a moviola. And they created a three-screen moviola so that you could look at the results of the three-camera shoot, and it would be a lot easier to edit. Yeah, they had a hell of a time editing the first, uh, the first show. And actually, the first show, they had four cameras because uh, they thought they were going to just shoot it continuously like a play. Uh, and, and one camera would, would you know, cover the action for a minute while the other three reloaded. And, and it was a mess. And, and the, other, the other thing is they planned to, to uh, turn the cameras on and off. They, they were just flailing. They really didn't know how to do it. They said, okay, we're, we're trying to do it just like they do a live television broadcast. And in live television broadcast, there's three, multiple cameras. There's a director in the booth, and he is on an intercom, and he's telling, he's saying, okay, go to camera one, go to camera two. And the other, you know, whatever the other cameras are looking at, nobody ever sees those. So they said, well, how can we do that with film? We'll turn the cameras we're not using off to save film, because film's very expensive. So, because you know, we don't want to have three cameras going all the time, for the, that's, that's a lot of film. So, that, so uh, they had intercom set up, and, and they said, okay, camera one, and the other two cameras would turn off. Problem with that is it takes time for a camera to get up to speed, and the sync with the sound is difficult. If, if it, you can't just do a slate at the beginning and, and, and clap with a clapstick and, uh, and synchronize off of that because you keep starting and stopping, and you have to synchronize each time. Some, a guy named George Fox, who is the guy who built the first three-headed moviola, had a system that was supposedly solved that it, was, it would do a flash or a click on the soundtrack and a flash on the film, on a part, of the, a side part of the film, so they could keep it in sync the whole time. They, did, they shot the first film with that technology. It didn't work. And they were so, the, the network was really concerned because it was very rubbery sync. It kept going a frame or two out of sync throughout. And that's why they didn't, the first one they shot was not the first one they put on the air because it took them a month for them to get the sync right on that one. And, and it, after that, they decided, okay, we're going to have to keep, we're going to use three cameras and keep, they're all going to be going all the time because it's the only way we can have the sync. Did they ever use that and, original episode where they had the problem? Yes. So Lucy thinks Ricky's trying to murder her. So did they were uh, able to fix the problem then by that, by that next time? Or yeah, they, but okay. yes, but they knew if we're going to do this and it's going to take five weeks to edit, this, we're not going to get this. this yeah, on exactly. Here. One of the things your dad did, and I, in reading the book, I never thought of him as a businessman, but he was very smart in that he owned 20% through an agreement with Desilu Productions of the show, of the I Love Lucy show. And at some point after the series ended, CBS wanted to buy him out. And he said no, because he had faith in the fact that the show would be around a while. I don't know if even he knew it would be around as long as it has. But were you involved in that decision-making or were you too young? Well, that was 1957, so I was six. So no. Well, I think you could have. I think you could have advised him, even at age six. <laughs> I, I, was, I was not that bold. Uh, he, well, he always said that uh, he, he felt it could go on forever because as long as a new generation can discover I Love Lucy, uh, you know, every generation would discover it on their own. And there's no reason it should ever uh, diminish in popularity because the, the shows are timeless and they just work. It's funny in this sense, Greg, that 
it is timeless and people do enjoy it generation after generation. And yet it's set at a certain time and place. And what I mean by that obviously is fashions and set design, et cetera. And yet that doesn't seem to be a barrier. Another one I'm thinking of, of along those lines is the honeymooners. That was set in a certain time and place, and yet that has a certain permanent appeal as well. And I think part of it has to do with the storylines, the characters, et cetera. Do you agree or disagree on that analysis? Well, I, I, I don't think the, the, uh, the setting of anything is, is that important in terms of time, but, but they were consciously trying to be, I mean, there's not a lot of topical references. It's set at a certain time, but there's, there's very little reference to the politics of the time, you know, whatever the big concerns of, of, of the culture at the time, they just stay away from that. Uh, and uh, it's not because they said they want this to be able to work 50 years from now because they had no idea it was going to be on 50 years later. They just, they, they were just looking for pure humor and not something that's, that's uh, today's headlines. Uh, because, partly because they, they figured, okay, by the time this goes on the air, you know, it, it may not be that big a topic anymore. It's funny because you're right. There, there's not references to politics, and yet at the same time, you have guest stars who are big names at that time. Somebody right. watching it for the first time today may not know who William Holden is or other stars of the time. But, it's, but, but it still works because they, they convey that William Holden is a big movie star, and that's all that's important. I mean, it's a bonus if you know, you know you, you're a fan of Harpo Marx or, or uh, Bob Hope or uh, John Wayne. But if, if you have never heard of these people, the shows still work. Right. They designed it in such a way that they're talked about, so you at least know who they're referencing, even if you've never heard of the person before. Right. Yeah. Do you keep finding new information about either your father or I Love Lucy? As time goes on, you are still discovering stuff? Not so much recently, because I, I've been to, to, these, to all the sources so many times. But uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Uh, at this point, but certainly until, uh, you know, it, it past the millennium, I, I was, uh, particularly when I was working on the, uh, I love Lucy DVDs because they, they, uh, they wanted uh, bonus material. Uh, and you know, it's hard to have a lot of bonus material for some, something that happened in the fifties, you know, to come up with it. Uh, yeah, there's no such a thing as a, that. there's no such a thing as a director's cut in that kind of context. Right. Although I was able to, I was able to find some deleted footage and my, my dad had 16 millimeter, uh, net, network bicycle prints. I don't know why they were called bicycle prints, but the, 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 the uh, they were sort of backup prints. Uh, some affiliates, it was the only print, but other affiliates, it was a backup print on 16 millimeter in case the network feed went out they could switch over to the 16 millimeter so that my dad had some of those. And that's exactly the way it went on the air. And for some reason, when they made the syndication cuts, they cut the negatives. They didn't make a, a, you know, a new fine grain and, and cut the, uh, that. They cut the negatives. So they, CBS didn't even have the stuff that I had. So, but we, we put that all back in. And, and I was discovering things. It was so much fun. I'm sitting in the, in the projection room and watching you know, the tour an episode called the tour and, and they're, they're at the farmer's market uh, about to get on the, in the uh, gray line tour bus to go see the, the movie stars homes. And I, I, I said, wait a second, stop, 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 go back. And I said, that's, that's my dad 
with the ice cream cone walking past the bus. <laughs> so he, he was doing Alfred Hitchcock type cameras. I've never, never known about that. <laughs> That's great. Well, I, I, I figured that because you're considerate, obviously from all the work you've done with the DVDs, et cetera, and your association and your relationships, that you would be the one who would be the font of all this information. But the reason I ask that question is, I always have in my mind that there's some lady that has a house in Pasadena with an attic, and in the attic is this picture you've never seen of your dad or of the I Love Lucy show, or there's some sort of memento that comes across from somebody living in Missouri. That, that's where I was going with that question. You probably know more than anybody else about the subject, but there's always these things out there that show up 10 years later, 20 years yeah. later, 30 years later. Well, my sister just gave me something that I, I had never seen before, which is a, a St. Christopher, a gold St. Christopher medal that, that uh, Lucy gave to my dad. It must have been on, during my favorite husband. And uh, on, on the back, it says, it's engraved to my favorite boss man, Lucy. Uh, <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah, she used nice. to call him boss. That was what she called him, boss man. And that becomes, if, pe if people read your book, they'll find that there's a point in time where your dad was not that happy with Lucy because of her throwing a little diva fit, and he took charge, and that seemed to work the magic. And ever since then, they had a great relationship. Yeah, and that was the first month they were working together. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But I was thinking even in terms of somebody, you might get a call from somebody or a letter from somebody that has correspondence from your father from that they found, in, again, back to the old attic, in a, in a little container in somebody's home, and you might come across something like that. But the fact that your sister at least gave you something that you weren't aware of before, there's something there. Yeah. Well, when you're working on, on something for several decades, and, and particularly when I was working on the, producing the DVDs, and everybody knew that I, I was the, the guy pulling everything together, they, they came out of the woodwork and uh, an amazing number of things uh, in, in the bonus materials on the DVD that nobody had ever seen before. What was the most surprising thing you found out about your father in relation to either I Love Lucy or in terms of television in general? Or radio, because your dad's got to start in radio. Yeah, I, I remember it being such a revelation when, when I was researching for the book and also just wanting to document my dad's history. Because I mean, the way this started was after my dad died, you know, I took very hard and, and we were very close. And I started looking for him in bookstores. I'd go, I'd go to the TV section and look at the TV history. And he was missing, amazingly. Uh, you know, I'd look up an encyclopedia of television and it says, I Love Lucy was written by Bob Carroll Jr. and Madeline Pugh and produced by Jess Oppenheimer. I say, well, how could they say that? You know, he's, he's credited as head writer in the, in the credits at the end of every show that are still on. But somehow that, you know, so I, I was very frustrated by that. And that's why I wanted to write the book. By writing the book, though, you have hopefully changed that where you start to see his name yeah. in bookstores in a proper way. And you write in your book about the fact that he was the producer as well as head writer. And there was that little argument with Desi about an executive producer position. I had to laugh because you were referencing earlier about the number of writers needed for a show and the number of producers needed for a show. And in today's world, there seems to be about 25 executive producers at the end of each credit. And right. the issue for your dad and Desi was that one executive producer credit, and that finally happened. 
and it, it was a little bad blood between your dad and Desi. But again, people read the book, it's an interesting story. If you look at it, your dad's career from beginning in radio to all the way through television, what was the most surprising thing you found out about him? Well, I, I don't know that I would call it surprise. Well, I was surprised personally because I, I, I hadn't realized it, but it, it, it's not a surprising thing about my dad. But when I, I, one of the things I did was try and track down all of my favorite husbands. There were some circulating, but there, you know, a couple of dozen, maybe three or four dozen. And just for our audience uh, to know, that was the predecessor to I Love Lucy. It, it ran from 948 to 951, and there were 124, 125 shows. And I, I located the original transcription discs, discs and, um, and then I, tr- I had, uh, had them digitized. And I was listening to all the episodes before my dad came on when Bob Madeline and other writers were writing him. And it was such a different show. And then I listened to the first one that my dad submitted. And I realized... Oh my God! This is this is the show that creates Lucy Ricardo because her her character changes totally in 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 that episode. And instead of being a, a socialite wife of a bank vice president with a sort of a Nick and Nora Charles type feel, you know, Sin Man feel to the uh, the patter, suddenly it's it's like Lucy and Ricky, and she's she's basically she's playing a little girl in a grown woman's body, and her relationship with her husband is as some aspects of a little girl's uh, relationship with her father. And that's because my dad had, was writing Baby Snooks for Fanny Rice before this. It was the only sitcom he'd ever done. And he took a lot of the aspects of that and put it into this show. And uh, it, it, it played so well, it was so successful, that they hired him as producer, director, and head writer. And they never looked back. That, that's, that's what Lucy was from then on. And 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 it was it, that that was the biggest surprise. It was a great surprise to say, "I've got it. This is <laughs> this is the place where it all started." Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Greg Oppenheimer, son of I Love Lucy creator, producer, head writer Jess Oppenheimer. Greg left a successful law career to finish his late father's humorous memoir, "Laughs, Luck, and Lucy: How I Came to Create the Most Popular Sitcom of All Time." The book's success led to Greg's 2018 hit comedy play, I Love Lucy, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Sitcom. Greg also produced the multi-award-winning I Love Lucy DVDs for CBS. Greg is on Facebook, and for some original and interesting programming, you can subscribe to Greg on his YouTube channel. Greg, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.